Welcome to Rusk Insights on Rehabilitation Medicine, a top podcast featuring interviews with thought leaders in the field of PM&R from Rusk Rehabilitation at NYU Langone Medical Center and other prominent rehab medicine institutions. Your host for these interviews is Dr. Tom Elwood. He will take you behind the scenes to look at what is transpiring in the exciting world of rehabilitation research and clinical services through the eyes of those involved in making dynamic breakthroughs in healthcare. So listen, learn, and enjoy. I would like to welcome back our listeners to part two of an interview with Dr. Tamara Wexler. So Dr. Wexler, welcome to you also. And let's begin where we left off at the end of the first part of the interview. Last time we spoke with you about various topics, including underlying mechanisms such as genetic predisposition for pituitary dysfunction. Similarly, do factors such as age, gender, and race ethnicity influence the kinds of pituitary dysfunctions that may occur? The answer is is the same in terms of the genetic predisposition. It might, but we don't know the answer yet. It is hard to tease out what aspects of a person before the traumatic brain injury versus aspects of the injury itself might make a difference. It is clear that pituitary dysfunction can occur at different ages, can occur after different severities of injury, uh, and it can occur after different periods of time. You can not have a pituitary dysfunction that shows up later, in fact. So both children and adults are affected by TBI-related pituitary dysfunction. It does seem that children may recover more frequently, but that is based only on looking at the percentage of people who've had TBI, children and adults, at, say, one year out. So again, we it's important in looking at the research also to look at what goes into the research and how the research was done, and we're still answering these questions. So we've been discussing the pituitary, and I like to think of the pituitary as a master controller, uh, almost like the thermostat in your home, right? So the pituitary secretes a number of hormones, but those hormones are signals for other things. The signals secreted by the pituitary lead to the production of stress hormones, which while they sound like they may be related to stress and are in a certain extent, when you get more stressed, you can have a higher stress hormone, is really important for supporting the body in times of stress, supporting blood pressure, for example, and the absence of that can in fact be fatal. So stress hormone, thyroid hormone, sex hormones, testosterone and estrogen, and, and growth hormone, among others. So, so those those body systems are regulated by the pituitary. And I mentioned that the pituitary acts almost like a thermostat in your house. And let's take, for example, the thyroid system. The pituitary senses, if there's not enough thyroid hormone around, so it turns up the signal that it sends to the thyroid gland to say, make more thyroid hormone. Or similarly, if there's too much around, it would normally, if working well, suppress that signal and the body would respond by making less thyroid hormone. So in that way, it helps to keep everything in equilibrium. When the pituitary is affected and can no longer respond appropriately or send the appropriate signal, that's what leads to problems. And again, happily, these hormones can be replaced, but the important part is thinking about looking for the deficiencies in order to diagnose them. Pituitarisms that either are transient or permanent may occur after a TBI. For the benefit of our listeners, please explain the meaning of that term and indicate whether pituitary dysfunctions can differ depending on the amount of time that has elapsed since the injury occurred. So hypopituitarism refers to 
a deficiency of a hormone secreted by the pituitary. And just to summarize, the hormones that are affected by pituitary secretions include stress hormone, sex hormones, being testosterone or estrogen, growth hormone and thyroid hormone. So you can get a deficiency in any one of those hormones or in several of them after traumatic brain injury. And those can occur acutely after an injury and then go away on their own. They can occur and then persist or they can show up later, we believe. And again, that's based on the research that we have, but there certainly is evidence that you may later get, for example, a growth hormone deficiency after a series of repetitive injuries, such as maybe occur during a sport. Does screening for pituitary disturbances occur routinely following a TBI? And if so, at what intervals? I think that's a really important question. I think whether or not there's screening for the disturbance depends entirely on the center at which one is seen and whether there's, you know, that that thought comes up as, oh, wait a second, this person has continued to have symptoms for six months, a year, several years. The symptoms are such that they might be due to a pituitary dysfunction. Let's look at that. It's not so easy to see. It's not that someone shows up with something that screams pituitary dysfunction. The symptoms that can occur are very related to those that can occur just from traumatic brain injury. But to return to your question, the intervals uh, that are recommended also differ based on center. So we recommend looking at it first, no, no earlier than usually six months, sometimes a little sooner after the, the inciting incident, after the traumatic brain injury. But even if things, whether or not things are normal, then we recommend looking at it six months to a year later and then a year later, because what is clear from the literature is that it's not clear whether these, you know, whether for any given person, the deficiencies will go away on their own or will show up later. So we do, I do recommend repeated screening. That said, some centers would recommend repeat screening if a patient is normal, for example, only if there are symptoms. And that's reasonable as well. So there are different approaches to this, particularly given the fact that the, the path of pituitary dysfunction after TBI seems to be different than the path of pituitary dysfunction after that can occur from another reason, such as a benign tumor in the pituitary, sort of smushing the cells that usually make hormones. We know a lot about the natural history of that. Um, we don't know as much about the natural history after traumatic brain injury. Many symptoms of pituitary dysfunction may overlap with post-concussive non-pituitary symptoms. How do you distinguish among them and then go about determining when screening is appropriate? I think that's one of the most important questions to look at because it's often symptoms that, that lead to a decision of whether or not to, to screen someone for something as, as is appropriate. And it's tricky in this case. The symptoms that come, for example, from growth hormone deficiency are often termed mental fog or can be fatigue. And those those symptoms are, are not specific to growth hormone deficiency. They occur after many different things that happen to people, whether just in their lives or whether it can be another medical issue, including traumatic brain injury. There are a few others that may seem more specific, but are, not, are still not diagnostic. So symptoms such as can be seen after sex hormone deficiencies, women can develop irregular menstrual cycles. Men can, can have a difference in libido or, or sexual function. That, again, can occur not just for the reasons of low sex hormones, but that is one reason, and it's worth looking at it. What is interesting is that in one study that looked at, basically looked at whether or not symptoms made a difference in, in terms of whether people had pituitary dysfunction after, after traumatic brain injury, those patients who had symptoms that would suggest 
low sex hormone often actually had a deficiency in a different pituitary hormone. But it did seem that that would be one good reason to think about screening. How exact are incidence and prevalence data on post-traumatic hypopituitarism? And to what degree do they indicate what progress is being made in dealing with this problem? That's a great question because the reports are quite wide or quite broad. So in terms of reports of how, how frequently it occurs range from, I'd say, for chronic anterior pituitary deficiencies, they've been reported in, I'd say, generally 15 to 60% of patients after TBI. Several, several groups report instances up to 80% in the acute phase. And so that's both very high and very broad. And I think that the reasons for that has to do with, one, the different definitions used for what might be a pituitary deficiency, and even more than that, the patient groups that are looked at. So it depends entirely on how the study is designed as to the number you'll get out. I shouldn't say entirely, but um, it makes a big difference. So for example, if a study is looking for which is the most prevalent pituitary dysfunction and only includes people who have symptoms of sex hormone dysfunction, you would expect to see those at a higher rate. So again, the, the, the way that the study is done, the population that is studied very specifically makes a difference for the rate that is reported. And I think that that accounts for that extremely broad spread. Regardless of whether it's 15% or 60%, most people feel it's closer to 20 to 30%, I should mention. But regardless of that, it's significantly higher than you'd expect in a general population. There's only one study that's ever been done in a healthy general population to look for pituitary dysfunction, and it was far, far less than 1%. So you can see that there's a big difference. In yesterday's issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association, it indicated that Alzheimer and related conditions leading up to Alzheimer's have now become the fourth leading cause of mortality. Originally, it was tabbed at the seventh leading cause. So it's becoming more and more prominent as a really serious problem. And supposedly, and you can perhaps you can perhaps shed some light on this, a TBI, once it occurs or occurs more than once, it could serve as a predisposing factor for the onset of Alzheimer's. Isn't that correct? That has been reported. And I think uh, the way I think of it is for any kind of dementia, any kind of disturbance to cognition, you can think of it as being a single disease process or many different factors that influence when or if that occurs. And it does make sense to me that repeated injuries that might affect cognition serve as one hit. So that alone may not be enough, but if somebody also has other environmental factors has or has a genetic predisposition to something, contracts dementia in some other way, that that absolutely would be expected to add up to the final picture. Earlier, you mentioned going back to your days at the Massachusetts General Hospital and then what you're seeing now in the New York University setting is the importance of collaboration among specialists in a lot of different areas. So as you look ahead now at NYU in particular, what kinds of research do you see as providing the necessary groundwork for controlled trials in different population subgroups, such as the aged? Ah, oh, interesting. I'll answer that in two parts. In terms of looking at pituitary deficiencies after traumatic brain injury, one of the advantages, which is a bit of a funny term to use in, in something that's related to any kind of human suffering, but one of the advantages of this area is that even though we're mentioning that looking for or treating pituitary deficiencies 
is not sufficiently common, that there's not a lot of awareness of it in the post-TBI patient population, it is standard of care. So it's not really a research tool. It's a registry can be used to capture information in an observational way and to capture studies that should be done anyway or could be done anyway if clinical judgment warrants it. Similarly, replacements given, that can be, we can capture that information through a a registry in an observational way because it's something that you would do for the patient anyway. That information from the registry, the observational information, can be used as essentially pilot data to form the basis of a clinical trial or a more controlled way of studying what happens if you replace a hormone. Similarly, you can use registry data and say, well, uh, we're noticing that patients who are older when they sustained their TBI or were older when they presented with symptoms are behaving in a different way in terms of either the incidence of dysfunction or what happens when you replace hormones than a younger cohort, a younger group of patients. And it's those types of observations when they arise that can lead to hypotheses about health and how human disease and symptoms come about that can then be studied in a more controlled fashion. In a relatively short amount of time, you've managed to cover a lot of ground on various aspects of TBI. Is there anything that you'd like to mention now as sort of an afterthought that might have occurred to you while you're thinking back to many of the other items we covered over these two sessions? Oh, thank you for asking. Well, I guess I would maybe summarize about pituitary deficiencies after TBI and something I like to tell all patients too, which is that we, we do know that pituitary deficiencies are seen at higher rates in people who have had TBI. We also know that the symptoms, as you mentioned, of hypopituitarism or pituitary deficiencies are similar to those that can be seen after a concussion to other post-concussive symptoms. It's unlikely that all post-concussive symptoms are due to pituitary deficiencies. So replacement alone should not be expected to fix everything or cause a complete return to pre-TBI baseline. But since it's straightforward to test for the deficiencies and straightforward to offer replacement when appropriate for deficiencies that are identified, it's reasonable to expect that replacing deficient pituitary hormones will contribute to improvement. And, And one thing I didn't get to mention was that we know that deficiencies in pituitary hormones, if left untreated, make people feel worse or make people sicker and that replacing them can reverse that. And that includes not just physical health, emotional health, but emotional health and cognitive health. So quality of life is something that is frequently noted as occurring, as being related to growth hormone levels. True growth hormone deficiency, patients with true growth hormone deficiency have report worse quality of life, and you can improve that by replacing it. And I, I think that, that that shouldn't be overlooked, that, that overall quality of life aspect. Dr. Wexler, I'm going to conclude part two of this interview by thanking you for sharing your insights with our listeners about several important topics pertaining to pituitary problems that stem from a TBI. Our listeners should benefit greatly from the excellent information that you've provided during these two interview sessions. And I'll also close by thanking you again and wishing you continued success in all your endeavors. Thank you very much. Thank you again for joining us. You can learn more about Rusk at nyulangone.org slash Rusk. Also, be sure to follow this podcast on Twitter at Rusk Podcast.